Hi everyone, Drew Prode here from the Broken Brain Podcast. In today's episode, we have my dear friend Shelly Lefko talking to us about beliefs, especially the painful beliefs that we have and how to question the meaning that we give to situations in life. Fascinating conversation, stay tuned. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot. Each week on the podcast, we have a new guest who helps us improve our brain health, feel better, and live more. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Shelly Lefko. Thank you for being here on the podcast. Oh my God, thank you for having me. Shelly Lefko is the co-founder and vice president of the Lefko Institute, a San Francisco Bay Area firm whose mission is to significantly improve the quality of life on the planet by having people recreate their lives and live as the unlimited possibilities they are. What a beautiful mission statement. Shelly was a featured expert on our Broken Brain docuseries, and she was also a featured keynote speaker at our Feel Good Summit. And you've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Hyman himself. I do. And he raves about <laughs> you. Shelly, I'm so glad that this worked out and we were able to have you on the podcast and talk to us about these important subjects about mindset, beliefs, and so much more. And I want to dive right into it because there's so much to talk about. And I want to talk about something that we don't typically talk about as much on the podcast, which is mindset and beliefs. Let's set the stage to get into that topic. First, tell us, why do people like Dr. Hyman seek you out? What are they looking for from you? Well, I think all of us, Drew, are, um, ha we have things that come very natural to us and very easy to us, and there are other things that don't. And so we, we all kind of, I use the metaphor, it's like we're all kind of running down this journey called life, and every once in a while we come up against a hurdle, and different people have different places where they get stuck. There's this little wall and they can't jump over the hurdle. And um, there are a lot of modalities and a lot of things that people could do, but we've discovered that um, there is something that underlies virtually every problem um, or issue that people have, and it's beliefs. And you know, 30 years ago when we first started doing this, we would talk about beliefs and people would say, what do you mean beliefs, like religious beliefs? They didn't even have any clue what that was. And today a lot of people are starting to acknowledge that it's very hard to make change without, and I use the word eliminating, and I'm very intentional about the word because people say busting and all kinds of things and hacking and um, I like eliminating because it actually makes a promise which is you will eradicate it, it will be gone. And so um, I think people like Mark are smart enough to know that um, we all have places where we get stuck and people who are into growth and wanting their life to be all that they can be um, seek out our work because it works and it's fast. <laughs> You know, I, I think you said 30 years ago, people had this question of what beliefs are, and yeah. now it's a lot, it's much more part of the common lexicon. But that being said, I always like to set the stage because people have different thoughts on it. So what are beliefs and when do they stop serving us? Oh, that's a great question. I love that. So what are beliefs? Yeah. Good. So a belief is a statement about reality that you believe is the truth. So I always joke and I say, it's like being pregnant. You either is or you ain't. So, and, and most of our beliefs are unconscious. We don't even know that we have them. But there are ways of discovering um, your beliefs. And mostly when you say a belief out loud, it doesn't feel good. It feels loaded. It feels energy or, or it just feels true. So that's what a belief is. Our beliefs stop serving us when they're causing us to be do or have things we don't want to be, do or have, or stop us from doing things that we want to be doing or having. Um, I'm very big in the being. <laughs> you know, um, beliefs keep us from being alive, being free, being joyful, being passionate, being able to go for your dreams. Um, and are there Beliefs that serve you and beliefs that don't? Or are you putting all beliefs in one bucket? No, I would say the word limiting beliefs is, is a very good description because, you know, um, I believe 
that um, being uh, unconditionally loving is a very important thing, both as a mother or grandmother or friend, you know, so that belief serves me because I am not, I don't love conditionally. Um, so there are beliefs that do serve us and you wouldn't want to touch those. There's no reason for it. Any belief by definition is limiting because if, if this is true, then this is not. But some beliefs, you don't, you don't experience them as limiting. Um, and you don't touch those. So the only, see, nobody wants, my, my husband used to say, um, nobody wants to eliminate beliefs. Nobody cares. What you want to eliminate are what we call patterns, behaviors, emotions that don't serve you. So, And that's usually where the pain is. Yes. So a big part of your work is helping people address their pain because I'm sure people come to you with a problem. This is a problem in my life. This is a person that's a problem. This is a situation that's a problem. My company is a problem. These are my problems. They're not necessarily coming to you to address a belief because they don't exactly. know that the belief is tied to that. Exactly. So how do you, take us from like step one, how do you help people get clear that their beliefs are running the show when they come to you with a problem? Yeah. Drew, it is so logical. <laughs> I mean, it's almost scary how sometimes you can, you know, somebody will say to me, uh, I procrastinate. And I say, well, before, right before you procrastinate, so you want to do something, you know, a lot of people buy self-help CDs and courses and never listen to them. Uh, lots of people, you know, promise themselves they're going to do things and they don't. And it, you know, it's horrible to walk around feeling like, you know, people end up calling me, I feel like a loser. I keep saying I'm going to do things. So I said, well, what happens right before you procrastinate? What are your thoughts and feelings? So the thoughts and feelings are, I'm not going to be able to do it. Uh, I might fail. I might make mistakes. People might think I'm stupid. And you would be surprised at how the same beliefs underlie the most common patterns that people have. Procrastination, fear of public speaking, not standing up for yourself, um, you know, not going after your dreams, you know, holding back. And the, the most common beliefs, and so you can ask yourself the question, what would somebody believe who would be afraid to pull the trigger, who would be afraid to do something? And the the for me, the most fascinating part about this is these people have read business books. They've heard um, people who are procrastinating. Procrastinating, you're exactly. It's not like they haven't studied about exactly. business or don't know intellectually what to do. Yes, but something is stopping them. Yes, they know intellectually that mistakes and failures are bad. Richard Branson says, if you're not failing a lot, you're going to be mediocre. I could give you four thousand quotes. There's a new book or this book out called, I think it's Failing Forward. You know. Everybody, you know, today doesn't matter because our beliefs live, and there's a reason, again, logic, which I love. Our evidence does not get rid of our beliefs. So going back to your question, the first step is it's logical. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to fail. Well, what would you have to believe to be afraid that you're going to fail? Mistakes and failures are bad. If I make a mistake or fail, I'll be rejected. And the ever popular belief that ran my life, what makes me good enough is having other people think well of me. <sighs> when I got rid of that belief, I, I called it my Martin Luther King Jr. moment because I was free at last. And it, it wow, <laughs> it makes me cry because when you're worried about what other people think of you, Drew, your attention's over here. When you're okay, no matter what anybody thinks, my attention's over there. I want to take care of you. I want to serve you. I'm not worried about what you think of me. I'm not thinking about me. And that's such a freedom for anybody who, and everybody, because everybody wants to contribute, I believe. So I think there's a lot of people that are listening today that feel like I can relate to the idea that my happiness is based on what other people think of me or I believe 
that my value comes from what other people think of me and it's causing them not to put themselves out there. It's preventing them from writing that book that they wanted to do. It's preventing them from speaking up at work. It's preventing them from saying that something doesn't work in their relationship. There's all these different ways that it could be manifesting. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And so I would first like to ask, where do these beliefs even get formed? So before we talk about what we can do about them, what's the origin? You know, there's a lot of different schools of thoughts about where these beliefs come from. A lot of people say it comes from childhood. I would love to hear your thoughts on how do these beliefs get formed and why do they get formed? My favorite question. Um, We come into this world, the way I say it is, as a little ball of consciousness, potential, possibility. And we don't know anything about ourselves, people, the world, life, money. We really don't. So you show up in a specific environment. And there's these two big people who seem to know how to do everything. They can drive, they can figure things out, they can pay the bills, they can cook. I mean, wow, these guys sure know what they're doing. And my survival depends upon them. So if they're wrong, that would be very scary for me. Now, all of of this is unconscious, particularly when you're really little. So we'll start with babies. Babies cry. And there are parenting gurus out there who will tell you to let your baby cry. And I don't care if it's for five minutes or four hours. You know, if the baby's crying, they're trying to tell you something. They, They have a need or they wouldn't be crying. So if they don't get, so if they don't get picked up, what are they going to feel and what are they going to conclude? So I will tell you something that fascinated me. I have clients in, because I work on Zoom or Skype, I have clients in every country. I mean, Uganda, Syria, it is crazy where I now have clients. And when I ask them, when your little one, if you have, if people have two or three-year-olds, and I'll ask your audience, when you come home at the end of the day and your child sees you, what do they do? And virtually every single person says, they run to me. And I say, really, what do they want? And basically they say different words, but what they say is they want three things, affection, attention, acknowledgement. And then I say, what is the one word question that every three-year-old asks all day long? I have a five-year-old grandson. Mimi, why can't we go today? Mimi, why can't you come? When are you coming? In two weeks. Why can't you come today? That's all they want to know is why. So when you come into this world, if you're criticized and there are cultures who only care about grades and achievements and, you know, Asian culture is very much that way. They're very parents. They love their kids. They're not bad people. They just, it's a cultural thing. You got to get all A's and you got to exceed and you got to excel. And so kids say, why can't I live up to my parents' expectations? And that's true of a lot of cultures, by the way, not just Asian culture. Um, you know, American people standing at a sporting event going four-year-old soccer game. What are you sleeping out there? What's wrong with you? Really? <laughs> it's like, why do you care? You know, it's it's a game. Like, so kids say, why can't I live up to my parents' expectations? Well, I guess I'm not good enough. Why are my parents never home? Why don't they ask me about my day? Why are they not involved in my life? Why are they looking at their iPhone when they're talking to me? Well, I guess I'm not important. So kids ask themselves, why can't I live up to my parents' expectations? Why can't I get all A's? Why can't I score at every game? Well, I guess I'm not good enough the number one belief that pretty much everyone has. And I'll explain why people's lives are different, even though everybody has that belief. 
So if you don't get attention or your parent is looking at their iPhone, my that's my soapbox. If if you were talking to me and I picked up my iPhone or my smartphone and I started looking at it, how would you feel? You know, would you feel very important? You know, so kids conclude I'm not important. What I have to say is not important. And if you're not affectionate with your child, they might conclude I'm not worth loving or I'm not lovable. If you're walking around complaining about money all the time, they're going to complain money is, they're going to conclude, sorry, money is scarce and hard to get. Um, if you walk around talking about people and being um, negative about people, they may conclude you can't count on or trust people. Now, is this part of the human condition that everybody would form beliefs? Because there's some people that feel like they had incredible parents or they have beliefs about things that has nothing to do with their their parents. So even if you have a great childhood, are you still forming beliefs about different things? Yeah. Um, and be careful with great... I had great parents. They were loving. Um, they were amazing parents. I mean, I, I really hit the lottery with my parents. But my mother did too much for me. You know, she loved me. She was, you know, a Jewish mother and wanted to do things for me. And um, and I concluded I'm not capable. So I did a lot of things well because things come easily to me. I'm lucky that way. I'm pretty smart and, you know, lots of things come easily. But the things that didn't, I didn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And when I looked underneath and I realized I had that belief, it was shocking to me. So my dad loved me with all his heart and soul. He would do anything for me. In fact, when I talked to him about this later on in life, he said, Shelly, if I knew how I was speaking to you was affecting you, I would cut my tongue out before I did it. But he would say to me, ah, eh, you just don't think. Ah, eh, you don't use your head. He didn't mean it. He wasn't a bad parent. We just don't have a manual when we walk out of the hospital or today birthing room. Nobody, you know, tells us how to do this job. That's not an easy job. It's one of the hardest jobs so I guess life. the follow-up question to that is that even if you do have a manual, and I know you've written a book on parenting, yeah. um, will your is it just part of human nature that your kids will develop their own beliefs even when you're doing your best? I guess the question behind the question is also too, is it all just our parents' fault? No, no. And it's not fault. I mean, I think I was as good a mother as you could ever be, and my kids have stuff. Right. I mean, we nobody gets Kids are always going to have stuff. And I did things that didn't work you know, guilt and whatever, you know, none of us know there's no such thing as a perfect parent and you wouldn't want to be because then your kids would think they have to be perfect. But there's a way that you can educate yourself to question what kind of environment am I creating? But we do create uh, beliefs about um, uh, all kinds of things from the world, from our first job, if we have a horrible boss, um, you may conclude, you know, bosses are mean or, you know, um, in this industry, this is how we do things. Um, people have beliefs about um, their ability to generate money that come from no matter what I do, I can't seem to make money. So instead of looking at life as this journey we're on, and this is where I am right now, and this is where I am right now, we tend to go out with our minds and we say, well, what does this mean? Why can't I? Oh, now, the first six to eight years are pretty much where your self-esteem beliefs get formed. The core sort of ways that you think of yourself. Exactly. Also, people have um, uh, extreme situations. So if you get mugged or if you get raped or if you get you know, um, something bad happens Some to you. adverse childhood experiences. Or even even as an adult. As an adult. You can conclude things. Um, it, particularly, you know, I, I've worked with people who've been date raped, uh, raped, incested. It's younger. But um, uh, molested. Uh, I have one client who was horribly mugged. And she's terrified to walk in the streets. So she's now concluded, I'm not safe. People are dangerous. You know, the world is not safe. Um, if you're raised in a country where there's conflict, I have clients who were raised in the Blitz or whatever, you know, even today, I have clients in the Middle East. Um, you know, you might conclude things like um, the world is not safe. 
um, as opposed to it's not safe where I live, but that doesn't mean the world is not safe. Um, there are also beliefs about, you know, if you're a woman and you live in a country where women are marginalized, your beliefs come from your culture. They don't necessarily come from your parents. So beliefs can come from a lot of different places, but the formidable ones between like th two, three, and eight years old are the ones about self-esteem, but any sort of major impactful experiences in your, in your life could be both towards the positive, but sp specifically when a negative experience happens, mm -hmm. there can be these beliefs that change all your behaviors and actions. But a big part of what you're talking about is most people are unaware that they're there. Mm -hmm. So how, what kind of, how is it that these beliefs are running the show without us knowing? It's a lot I can say about this. I, I hesitate because this is a very abstract part of my work, but it is the key about why our beliefs stay with us for so long. Um, if you, I'll give you a good example. Let's assume you had the belief that Mark didn't like you. You just had that belief. And you and I were standing and talking and Mark walked by and didn't say hello to you. Wouldn't you say to me, see, I told you he doesn't like me. That's in that example, that's me giving uh, evidence for what I think the belief is. Well, no, no. It's actually thinking that you see he doesn't like me. Right. See, he doesn't like me. See, I told you, uh, um, I told you money's scarce and hard to get. You know, I did this, this, and this, and nothing happened. See, I See, told here's you. here's another example of how I'm a failure. I, yes. So you're a kid and you're constantly being told, you, why didn't you do it this way? Why didn't you do it that way? You got four A's and a B, you know, and you think you see I'm a failure. I don't have what it takes. Now, sometimes parents say overt things, but mostly it's covert. Mostly it's a rolling of the eyes or a tisking or a shaking of the head. You know, it's I'm disappointed in you. And we think in that moment that we're actually seeing this belief in the world. And when I worked with, and I always hesitate because there's this moment of like, oh, Shelly, you're going to lose your credibility, but it's true. I worked with five Harvard PhDs who had the belief I'm stupid. Now, they know they're not stupid. They went to Harvard. But I said to one of them, how'd you get through Harvard? He said, I conned my way through Harvard. And that's how it lives for him, Drew. Like he really conned his way. Now you don't con your way through Harvard. However, when we went back to his childhood, his father used to call him um, genius. And he would slap him on the back of the head and say, genius, constantly. And I, when I get to the step in my process where I ask people, doesn't it feel like you saw that you're stupid? Everyone says the same thing. I did see it. Now here's the, this is the, the juice. You, um, I don't want to use a double negative. It's impossible to not believe something that you think you saw. So if somebody said to you, Shelly doesn't wear glasses, You'd say, no, she does. No, she doesn't. Yeah, she does. Because you see that I wear glasses. It would be very hard for you to not believe that. So I use the metaphor of Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy. As kids, we think we saw those things. I, I saw a guy in a red suit and a white beard, and I saw money under my pillow. Don't tell me there's no Tooth Fairy. There is. And one day you get I never saw Santa Claus. As you get older and you're like, oh yeah, I've never seen him. I never saw Santa Claus. I saw my parents, or, or that moment where you realize it's your father. And you go, I, and I was with my niece um, when it happened. You know, she just went, that's daddy. And in that moment, she got, I never saw there was a Santa Claus. I saw my dad in a red suit and they told me there was a Santa Claus. 
That belief is gone and it never comes back and you had it for eight years. That's how my process works. When I work with the most, my most favorite population is people who have been incested or raped or, you know, because they have beliefs. I'm damaged goods. I'm worthless. I'm powerless. Men have all the power or in one case, you know, women have all the power. And when you get rid of those beliefs, there's a freedom and you no longer have to be defined by something that happened to you that was horrible while it was happening, but it doesn't have to define you for the rest of your life. So, so going back to the question of, you know, why and how are these beliefs formed? What you're saying is that these are stories we're giving in the moment to these situations. We think that they're true. They form a belief. Maybe neurologically, I'm sure somebody can explain that there's a group or a chunk of neurons yeah. that get anchored yeah. because we tend to remember negative experiences way more than positive experiences. I don't remember who it was, but at the Feel Good Summit, somebody said, you know, if you think back to 9-11 or for people who are a little bit older, do you remember where you were when JFK was assassinated? Mm -hmm. Everybody can remember because when a negative experience happens, that's very traumatic on especially like a scale like that, your mind anchors in that moment and will remember exactly what happened. So in a way you're saying that when a, when a belief happens, a limiting belief yeah. right, is formed, it's formed as, am I hearing that you're saying like a protection mechanism to try to create meaning out of the situation? No, it's not to try. It's that, you see. You think this is the conclusion because this is what you think you're seeing. You're seeing, exactly. Yeah. So I saw this, this is what that means. Exactly, exactly. And I saw the meaning. So like you just put in an extra step. Um, I saw this and this is what this means. That happens, but it's the seeing it that you think is the truth. I saw myself failing in this business or I saw myself that people don't like me. You people think don't you, like me. You think I'm you actually a failure. saw failure. Yes. All politicians are corrupt. That's a better one. All politicians are corrupt. I, can't you see that? There's this one, this one, this one. No, I can see this one, this one, this one, and this one. But I can't see all politicians because you can't see all politicians. You can't see, whenever I ask somebody, doesn't it feel like you saw? And they say, yes. And I said, did you ever really see whatever the belief is? And I say, well, no. What did you see? The first thing they say is I saw people. I say, seven billion because when you're a kid, Drew, your parents are people. Your mother's women, your father's men. So if your father is um, uh, rejecting, you may form the belief, I'm not what men want. So if you want to go into the whole area of relationships and dating, you know, I'm not what men want. You know, my father was never there or my father left. And so now men leave. And then they just keep creating, meeting men who leave. You know, that's the self-fulfilling prophecy part, you know. So you shared one of your limiting beliefs a little earlier. Yeah. Could you restate it again? Yeah, I'm not capable. So. And what makes me good enough is having other people think well of me. That so let's talk game. about that. What did you think that you saw for have as much as you want to share in your own life? Okay. What did you think that you saw? that formed those beliefs for you. Yeah, great, and I'll share anything. <laughs> so I'll give you both. So when I was a kid, my friends had chores. I didn't have chores. I My mother was only concerned that I was happy. That was her thing in life was that I would be happy. And she couldn't stand to see me unhappy. So if I was struggling with something, instead of saying what my daughter says to her son, try something different, you know, or what else can you do? She would say, I'll do it, Mamala. I'll do it, sweetheart. And she would take it out of my hands. She did everything for me. She made my life very easy, you know? So I said to myself, why is she doing that? Well, I guess I'm not capable. And I never knew I had that belief because I lived alone in New York City, had my own apartment, I traveled, I was in the travel business. I traveled the world. Um, I thought it was pretty, I paid my own bills. 
I thought I was pretty capable. But what, what my pattern was, was when something came hard to me, I didn't do it. So computer stuff, that's not my natural gift. Writing, I am not a writer. I'm a speaker, but I'm not a writer. Um, so I just wouldn't do those things. I would staff it out or ask for Halloween costumes. You know, I had a belief also from um, a sixth grade teacher. No, I'm sorry. Fourth grade teacher told me I was not creative. And that one just landed, you know. Um, uh, and I, I had to live with that a lot of my life. I'm not creative. So if it was something, you know, like a Halloween costume, my friend Deborah was really good at that. So I'd say, Deborah, would you make like a Halloween costume? And she'd say, of course. So I wouldn't try. And one day I said to my, um, uh, one of my closest girlfriends, I said, Letha, how did you learn PowerPoint? This was years and years and obviously years ago. And she said, I don't know. She said, I got on and I tried and tried and failed and failed until I figured it, figured out. it out. I was like, really? So I sat down with my husband and we did this belief um, I'm not capable. And when he said, say the words, those weren't quite my words, but my father used to, my father used to say, ah, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I thought the word was idiot, N-I-D-I-O-T. And I said, I said, it's not quite, I'm not capable. It is, but I'm an idiot. And tears sprung to my eyes. And I realized I had a bunch of beliefs. I had the belief mistakes and failures are bad. Because if I made a mistake or failed as a kid, um, first of all, my parents would, not my mother, but my dad would get upset. But school, I mean, don't even get me started. But, you know, you know, when my kids were little and they made mistakes and failed, I would say, learning opportunity, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so when my daughter Blake was nine years old, um, I did that. And she said, Mom, it's getting old. I got it. <laughs> I got the message. <laughs> but I had the belief mistakes and failures are bad. I'm not capable. And I was very, you know, I was pretty successful in life. Not nearly as successful as I could have been. I mean, I could never have done some of the things that I'm doing now for fear I'd make a mistake or I'd fail. Or Now, here's the final one. This is the belief that I think ruins people's lives. And as parents has us throw our children under the bus because a stranger that you're never going to see again might not think well of your kid or you. And it's the belief what makes me good enough is having other people think well of me. So a lot of us came from families where our mothers would worry about or our fathers would worry about what will the neighbors think? What will they think? What will they think? They, the general they. Do you know that my brother... So I was the kid who worried about what they thought. My brother was the rebel, which is another story. Another, Some kids don't form these beliefs. So my brother came home one night and said to my mother, why am I never home when they come? <laughs> who are they? Why have I never met them? Yes, they, exactly. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Um, so what are they going to think? You know, if I dye my hair pink... You know, I had I have an alternative daughter who lives in Hawaii and, you know, has one pair of flip-flops and, you know, surfs and she lives a very different kind of life. She's always been that kid, you know, and she went through her I want to dye my hair pink stage when that was not a thing <laughs> like today. And I had to get rid of that belief so that I can allow her to be her, not who I thought she should be. And that was a gift. Because when you're worried about what other people think, you're telling your child, don't be you, don't be your authentic self. You have to live life worried about what other people think. And the saddest thing is, I ask people, do you know what the neighbors thought of you when you were little? And you don't know. You think you know. You don't know. You don't have a clue. Has it made any impact on your life at all? No. No. The, what the neighbors think doesn't define you. What anybody thinks doesn't define you. And here's the thing that, that I think is so powerful. If you 
tell your children or you get rid of that belief and tell yourself, no matter what you do, somebody's not going to like it. So you may as well do what you want. However, before you do something, stop and think about what might the consequences be of my actions? Way more powerful question. And do I want to live with those consequences? Yeah, because you may have a, a daughter that wants to dye her hair pink. And it's, uh, well, nowadays it's a thing. Right. But let's say somebody wants to do something in particular. There might be consequences or implications from their actions, right? And your child and as a family, you have to talk through whether that's something that you want to experience, you don't want to experience, yes. whether it matters to you, whether mm -hmm. it does, doesn't matter to you. Mm -hmm. But your beliefs have nothing to do with the situation in a way. Like meaning like, it's not like um, when a parent, well, let's even take a step back. A lot of times it seems that parents are projecting their own beliefs on their kids. It's just one generational thing to the next. And, and especially when it comes to anything like culturally related, as for instance, I dropped out of college and I was the first person in the history of my family, generationally, that had ever left higher education, where some families, their child is the first to go to college. Right. I was the first to drop out of That's school. That's great. Especially as a, with my Indian, South Asian background, school and education is so important. And when I dropped out, which was in the year like 2003, um, that that wasn't a thing. An entrepreneur wasn't really a thing. It was just starting to show up. Yes. But since then, culture has changed a little bit. There's this understanding that, oh, actually people, if you want to be a business person or an entrepreneur, you know, if you actually have some talents and skills, maybe university isn't for everybody. It's not like I was doing terrible in school. I was smart. I was capable. I just didn't want to follow that path. I knew the consequences. The consequences were I would have to work twice as harder because I wasn't just going to be able to get a job right after that, but I also knew that I could go back to school if needed. My parents, well-meaning, were afraid and were a little bit in the space of, well, what will they, what will people think? Yep. But that just came from their parents. Yep. And I want to, I want to say something about that. These beliefs get formed, like you said, generation to generation to generation. And they believe you have to go to college to be successful in life. Guess what? <laughs> you know, you're doing pretty well from my vantage point. You but know, and there it was true with my father. Maybe he was in school. There was not a lot of opportunity to go and create your own business, especially in another country. But again, even then, perhaps. Perhaps. See, I wanted my kids to go to college. It was really important to me because I didn't finish college. And so it was a big deal for me. And there's a big joke. It, my my younger my old my younger daughter went to a really really good school, and she was crazy. She loved being she loved being around smart people. So she was very kind of driven in that way. But my kids went to an alternative school with no grades, no tests, and no homework for nine years. My alternative girl, the pink haired girl, took ten years, and on her. Uh, uh, Graduate, when she finally graduated, they her friends bought her a cake and it said 10 effing years. <laughs> Congratulations. 10 years to finish college. <laughs> college. Yes. Got it, got it, got it. Yes. But she did finish. She did. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful and it doesn't mean that you're not going to be successful. You know, if you want to get that kind of education, I think it's a great idea. But, you know, the Vishen Lakiani is starting a whole new kind of education where you go for a month and you immerse yourself in, you know, uh, a university where you actually learn about life and you learn about how to love and how to be in relationship and how to communicate and how to be of service. What a concept, you know, not something you learn in college. Yeah. And for those that are listening, they're not familiar with Vishen. He's the founder of Mind Valley, mm -hmm. and you can uh, Google them and see what they're up to. Yeah. Go, going back to your story, yeah. you know, and I asked you, what were the beliefs that you thought that you saw and you yeah. shared with us? Yeah. Where was the first point in time in your journey and your development where you actually started to pierce through those? And it sounds like 
question the truth of those beliefs? Where did that start? What was that influence in your world? Well, I did something called the EST training, which was a two-weekend um, personal growth uh, transformational thing. And that was the first thing that cracked me open to that. I was one of these people. I'm fine. I have the mo- I'm happy. Life is good. I had the perfect family. I don't have any issues. I mean, that was me in my 20s. <laughs> and then I did the S training. And Which was, was popular in like the 60s and 70s. Yeah. 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 And so, ultimately kind of became like landmark form and a exactly. few other ones. And that it are out was, there. yeah, it was the pretty much the first personal growth, yeah. big explosion big of like um, this something else here. Yeah. Um, and so that was my first awakening, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I met my husband there. And um, uh, Morty was on what he called an intellectual spiritual journey to find out why people know what to do and don't do it. We know to wear seatbelts. We go into relationships knowing that this is not a good idea. Um, we we have, um, uh, we know we should eat healthily. You know, we know sugar is bad. So he was like, why do we know how to do things or what to do and what not to do and we don't do them? So he went on this quest and he did lots and lots and lots of, um, spiritual self-help, personal growth, therapy, you name it. And he was on an airplane and kind of, he says, downloaded this process of why his life was the way it was. He was uh, depressed um, early on and um, uh, things that were supposed to turn out just kept not turning out. And he actually realized that he saw himself as somebody who overcomes obstacles. That was like how he saw himself. So if you see yourself as somebody who overcomes obstacles and that's your worth and value, you know, that people say, wow, Morty, oh, nothing stops Morty. That's what you're going to create is obstacles to overcome. So he downloaded the process and he came home. He got the job that he was pitching and he came home and he did this process um, with somebody in front of me. And it was actually somebody who um, had beliefs about um, why she wasn't married. I want to be married. Why? He said, what do you want to work on? She said, I'm not married. I'm not in relationships. And so he uh, helped her a little and said, well, what do you believe? And she just started sprouting these beliefs, Drew. And she said, well, marriage is suffocating and you have to give yourself up when you get married. And um, men are... um, men are selfish and men only want one. And, you know, just going on, I was just sitting there and I watched him get rid of a belief with her and something happened to me. And I, I just, I just got, I, I said, that's what I'm on this planet to do. I mean, it was, it was one of those defining moments in my life where I just went, oh my God, that's what I'm here to do. And I remember feeling like, ah, oh, I have a purpose. And that was it. And I kind of, you know, we train people to do our work. And it's it's not always easy to learn how to do it. And I'm not somebody who just learns things quickly. That is not my claim to fame. But this, I breathed it in and it was in my cells. It was just like the air that I breathe. And that's how it's been for the past almost 30 years. So we talked about beliefs and beliefs tie into meaning. You told this great story at the Feel Good Summit, I remember, about an incident with bananas. Ah, yes. Can you share that story and help us help us understand more about meaning? Uh, but I'd first love you to share that story. Yeah. So um, uh, my husband walked in the house one day and he said, there are no bananas? And I said, Bananas! I I'm, I had four sessions today, and I'm raising two kids, and and I have things. To, what do you mean bananas? And he looked at me, and he said, "Shelly, I just said there are no bananas." <laughs> you know, it's like, I, you know, you're very defensive, honey. He said, "You know, I noticed that. You know, you might want to work on that." And I realized, I, I said, okay. And I sat down and I realized I am defensive. You know, if my kids would say to me, oh, mom, you always do that. I, instead of getting it, you know, and saying, wow, I didn't realize. Thanks for telling me. I would say, 
what do you mean? I, I, I'm the best mother in the world. And I didn't say that. And I didn't do it. And he used to make my kids crazy. It was the one thing they wanted me to change was, was my defensiveness. So I sat down and I had a session. And one of the beliefs was a good husband and a good mother takes care of her family. Takes a care a of good her wife. A good wife. A good wife. A good wife. Sorry. Good wife takes care of her husband and a good mother takes care of her kids. And so if I wasn't doing that well, like my mother did, my mother just took care of my dad. You know, everything was about him. You know, when he came home, dinner was on the table. You know, um, it was the the 50s, you know. Right. Um, and she just took care of him. And she took care of my brother and I. Whatever we needed, whatever we wanted was there. She was the best mother. And so I had this belief that a good wife takes care of her husband. A good mother, you know, is just doesn't do anything wrong with her kids. And so I was defensive. And when I got Because you of, felt that you weren't living up to that expectation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's causing you pain. And so you're going to take it out on the people around you who are questioning what you think they're questioning. Yeah. The meaning that you were giving to it was you think they're questioning you as a mother. Yes. I was not being a good mother. Absolutely. And, and that was my how I saw myself, like the way we say it in our work is what makes me valuable, what gives what either what makes me good enough or what makes me valuable is being a good mother, being a good wife. And so if I wasn't doing that, if I didn't have bananas, then I can't be good enough and I can't be valuable. So we, we talk about it as the belief I'm not good enough is like a beach ball. And what makes me good enough is holds it down. So as long as I'm being a good mother and a good wife, I'm good enough and I'm valuable. But if I'm not, guess what? Comes in my face. Workaholism. What makes me good enough is achieving things. So if you're a kid and you only get acknowledged for all A's and achieving and scoring goals, you're going to think what makes me good enough is achieving things or what makes me valuable is achieving things. So if you're achieving things, life is good. I'm not good enough is underwater like a beach ball, right? But guess what? Every time something threatens your achievements, you know, your business is failing or, you know, they hire somebody younger than you or something threat up comes, I'm not good enough and it's in your face. So that's where my defensiveness came from. And especially in relationship, we see this a lot. The researcher, John Gottman from the Gottman Institute, he talks about how he has a story that he was in a pitch meeting for a book and they were saying, you know, just tell us what couples fight about. Uh, is it sex? Is it religion? Is it money? Is it kids? He said, I'll tell you what couples fight about the most. Absolutely nothing. They fight uh. about nothing. They fight about resentment that's been built upon beliefs. And now you're talking about this tiny thing that it really factually has nothing to do with anything, but is linked to this thread that goes back to these core beliefs yes. that are there. Bananas. Bananas. We're fighting over, I mean, really. And you're that, going bananas over bananas. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so help us understand meaning and how it's related to those, how it's related to just all beliefs. Right. So um, beliefs get formed in the past and meaning is something that you give, like all day long we give meaning. Things happen and we give meaning. Somebody didn't talk to me. They don't like me. My boss yelled at me. He's going to fire me. Uh, my kid spoke to me a certain way. They don't respect me. So we give meaning to events all day long. And the meaning we give to events mostly comes from the beliefs that we have. So if you're walking down the street and you have a belief that men are dangerous, right? So you had a violent father and you have beliefs men are dangerous. And you're walking down the street and a man walks past you. You're going to give it the meaning that he might hurt you, and then you will feel fear. If you give it the meaning, he'll protect me because you have the belief men protect women, because maybe your father protected your mother all the time, then you'll give the meaning, oh, I'm safe, and you will feel safe. So your feelings come from the meaning you give events. Now, I'll give you a good example. Um, Brittany, who's a wonderful, wonderful, amazing young woman. She's spectacular. 
But when she was a very hormonal- This is your daughter. My daughter, I'm sorry, thank you. My younger daughter. She was a very hormonal teenager, as they all are. And she walked into the house one day, and I think my husband was the best father that was ever put on this planet. I really, and his kids feel that way also. <laughs> um, so um, she walked in the house, and Morty said something, and she said something, and she just looked at him, and she said, oh my God, you're being such a dick. And I was like, so shocked. I, I, I kind of ran towards her. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, but it was like not okay. And Morty looked at me and he said, Jelly, relax. It's a word. And she walks into her room. She slams the door and he walks up to the door of her room and he says, I hear a teenager who loves her father right now, who loves her father and is not in touch with it right now. And we hear this sneaker thrown at the door and we hear a laugh and she comes out and she goes, oh my God, daddy, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I just had the worst day and I'm sorry and you don't deserve to be talked to. And she was crying and she held him and he held her and that was it. And the whole situation de-escalated. Totally. Because the other alternative could have been that you're husband yelled at her, punished her because his, oh, she's not being respectful. Yes. Because he made a meaning out of the situation. Yes. She's yes. not being respectful. Yes. She's not doing this, not doing that. Instead of like, maybe some girl at school said something to her and people have moments. Everybody knows they have moments. Kids have moments too. And that and sometimes even parents do get their way. A parent could, in this case, Morty could have yelled at her and everybody would have said, oh, he's justified for doing that and this. And she could have become more submissive and then taken that into the rest of her life. And that's not what you want as parents either. So by simply not putting meaning and leaving it open, your husband created a place where everything could deescalate and, and just a little bit of forgiveness and clear communication could just wash the situation away. It was like a teaching moment. Beautiful. Wow, that's amazing. Beautiful. And I, I want to also say something besides I am madly in love with you. I mean, you, for getting that the way you got that was stunning. But I want to add something. Please, please. Submissive or rebellious. Or rebellious. She could have gone either way. Exactly. She could have gone either way. Nobody's going to listen to you anyway. You. you might as well do whatever you want. Right, exactly. And it's not usually... It could be one situation that could lead to that for kids. It's usually a buildup yes. over a period of time. So parents who are listening, you know, yes, you might get your way and you might even be told by everybody around you that you're justified for the way that you discipline your your kid. But again, it's action reaction. At what cost? At what cost and what's being and what's happening. And there's another alternative because it's not like your husband didn't discipline her. That's another version of discipline is he addresses the situation. You're not telling anybody to just, oh, ignore it. Let's let the kids, quote unquote, walk all over us. Yes. He gave her love. He addressed it directly. He didn't shy away from it. And there was resolution. And she knew. She, she knew. knew. She didn't want to talk to him like that. Now, if that's how she started talking to him, he would sit down and this is what I teach parents. Get to the source of the problem. What's really going on? What's Why are you going, talking to this? Yes, man? what's going on, honey? This Who's is not like you. you. Yeah. Again, this doesn't mean yes. when you don't apply meaning, meaning to a situation, it doesn't mean that you just let it go. Somehow people think that it's non-attachment, and non-attachment means that, oh, I don't care what happens, whatever happens, it's fine. Oh, if she becomes a, you know, addicted to drugs right. or no the wrong deal. crowd, it's right. no big deal. But that's not what you're talking about. We're talking about not projecting a meaning that's not serving the situation beautiful, and instead being intentional. Beautiful. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful lesson. Beautiful. Um, In fact, quite the contrary, because you will have a better, whether this is your spouse, your boss, or your kid, if you don't give meaning or you dissolve the meaning that you give, you will be much more likely to have a healthy or functional relationship where you can talk about issues and resolve them. Because you're much more likely just bring each other the root of what's going on. Yeah. Even in relationships. Because you feel safe. It's like, okay, what do you really want? Yeah. And what matters to you? Let's speak up and let's talk about that Beautiful. instead of the periphery. Yep. So Shelly, you know, a big part of this work is it seems 
of course, it's like there's so much that's here, but it's becoming aware of how we show up in the world and what and how we're using our belief systems. They're almost like wrecking balls that are just ramming into our life. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes we don't even know that these unconscious beliefs are having the damage and impact on us and it causes so much unnecessary suffering. I'm sure you see that with your clients all the time. There was a gentleman whose name is Brad Blanton, a little bit of a, a controversial uh, individual, but he developed a system and a methodology called um, radical honesty is what he was known for, yeah. right? He wrote a few books out there called radical honesty. Yeah. And you know, he has his own methodology, but I always remember his core teaching. We had a former employee who was really into his work and is now the director of his center. His primary teaching was as uh, I think he was a psychotherapist working with uh, clients in the DC area. He said, after a period of time, I found that most suffering that human beings were coming from was them lying to themselves, lying to themselves about what was truly going on. And in a way, I almost think of beliefs as we're, when we are fighting and defending for this belief or this meaning, we're almost like little kids who are having a tantrum. We think we're having a tantrum because we're not getting that toy, but actually we're just tired mm-hmm. and we need a nap. Mm-hmm. And your version of the nap, <laughs> your version of the nap is the resetting on the beliefs that are there. That wasn't really a question. It was more of a statement. I just want to thank you for all the work that you are doing out there. I want to talk about your your late husband, Morty. You know, you have spoken so endearingly of him and uh, he passed away uh, uh, three and a half years ago. Um, you've already shared how his work and the path that he went down led to, you know, your own transformation along with each other. And you guys have founded the... Uh, co-founded the Lefko Institute together. Um, what do you think about some of the lasting, meaningful work and imprint that it led on your life, the things that you learned from him in addition to what you've shared here? Is there mm. anything that you want to share here that has been the imprint that Morty's work has had on on the, the organization and you as a whole? <sighs> I learned so much from my husband. Um, He was my great mentor. Um, And one of the things that for me drives me to keep his legacy alive was he was the real deal. You know, he was not somebody who, it was never about him. You know, it didn't matter how many tens of thousands of people we've impacted. If he ran into somebody who was in pain, he would sit with them for three hours and be late to a dinner party. Um, He was the most just committed person to ending suffering on the planet. And um, he was was depressed a lot of his life. He didn't have a very good childhood. And he wanted people to be his, his passion was people to for people to be free we have a course called the freedom course and when i look at what his legacy is when he got sick we had um i had a blog posts and we had a website set up and there were just thousands of people saying i am free because i did your work i don't yell anymore at my kids or um Uh, One woman, I'll never forget this as long as I live, she said, I used to wake up every single day counting how many days it's been since I felt crippling anxiety after I worked with you. And she said, at some point I stopped counting, you know, crippling. Because she's been free for such a long time. She's free for such a long time. You know, I actually said it to her in a session is the truth. I said, when are you going to stop counting? It's not coming back, you know. But he, um, here's what I want to share about him if I, if I can. And this is, I'm sharing this because I think it can touch everybody's life that thinks that what you do is who you are. At my husband's memorial, we had about 100 people. I was very last minute because 
Anyway, it was very last minute. We had about 100 people. And what I noticed was every single person who got up and spoke about him said he was the most loving person they had ever met. He was the most um, uh, non-judgmental, kindest. My, we had two people who knew him for 40 years, um, from Est actually, who were there and said that in the 40 years they knew him, they never heard him say a bad word about anybody. He had integrity. And my daughter, the surfer, the Hawaii girl, not the shoe, stood up and she said, it was one thing to know I was unconditionally loved every day of my life, but to never feel judged. That was my father. Can you imagine? Incredible. That's who he was. So why I share this is because when you think that your kid didn't get a 4.0 or you didn't get a 4.0 or you don't have the money or the success that your friend or your neighbor has, that is not what defines you. It is not what people talk about when you die. They talk about who you are. Being with you, Drew, the you you listen you're connected you're thoughtful you know you're warm you're you know it, being with you is it is a privilege it is that's what people care about and that's his legacy he walked his walk and he was a human being and not a human doing in this world of more 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 adding more feeling like we're not enough people comparing themselves to other people it's such an important reminder of like who are you at your core because when it's all said and done that's all that's left is that imprint that you had yeah. on individuals shelly you're doing incredible work through the organization and at actually the Lefko institute you're keeping the legacy alive you have you continue to do your courses and you work with people tell us a little bit more about the organization and how people could work with you if they're interested in reaching yeah. out. So um, one of the things that um, we want is for people to actually have an experience of eliminating a belief. So if you go to recreateyourlife.com, it's R-E, recreateyourlife.com, you can eliminate one of the three most common beliefs that people have. So pretty much everybody has one of the three of them. So you can do that. Um, I have private sessions with people. We have courses that train you in how to do this uh, work uh, if you're interested in working with people. And we have a course called the Freedom Course that teaches you how to dissolve meaning. And one of the um, great things about this course is at the end, the process in which you dissolve meaning is so fast, you don't even catch it. So, you know, something happened during the interview, right? And uh, they lost 15 minutes of, of what we were doing. And I started and I went, oh, no, it was so good. And all of a sudden, I, it was just like not even a second. And I just went, well, maybe it'll be better. You know, I just didn't give it meaning. It didn't, I didn't have to dissolve meaning. It just didn't even happen. And um, it almost becomes like hardwired into yes, who you are. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And are you, can people find you on social media too? Yes, Lefko, Lefko Institute, and it's L-E-F is in Frank, K-O-E, LefkoInstitute.com. And um, yeah, come to visit us. And check her out on the Broken Brain docuseries. Mm -hmm. You're inside there helping people understand beliefs in our mindset episode, uh, mindset, trauma. And uh, maybe one day we'll do another big feel-good summit that people can see you oh, on stage and check it out. I love that. Shelly, any last words that you want to leave our audience with? Just you, your lives can be what you want your life to be. You just, you know, sometimes you got to do the work. But remember, any suffering, you know, what happens to you can be awful, but suffering is optional. Mm. Beautiful. Shelly, thank you so much for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast and flying down here and being here with us. Uh, I truly appreciate you and the work that you're doing and the legacy that you're keeping alive of your husband and the work that you've done, I know Mark, my business partner, speaks so highly of you. 
Uh, and now, of course, I totally understand why. <laughs> so thank you so much thank for being you, here with sweetheart. us. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I know you have lots of things to do with your time, and listening to Drew is the smartest thing you do. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.